And for the little kids, little kids are free to go to Sunday school class. Let's call it three, four, and under can go over there. And for the older kids, if, uh, if you want one, there's clipboards out there in the lobby that are fresh every week with sermon notes and activity pages for the, for the older kids. All right. And does anybody need a Bible this morning? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. There's no shame in asking for one. Craig's got them over here. Anybody need one? Everybody's good? Okay, awesome. All right. So <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was telling Eric and Jimmy as I was prepping this week, um, I mean, the Word of God is really rich, right? But Isaiah 53 is an amazing passage, okay? And, I, and I'm excited because we're going to wrap it up this whole week. But I feel like, I told him, I feel like I've been eating spiritual filet mignon, right? Like for my soul, you know? And it's been, it's been awesome for me as I prepared it. And so now as I get to share it with you guys, I feel like I get to cut a piece of that off and, and give it to you, right? So it's, uh, the Word of God is really rich. And I was also thinking, too, um, you know, how, how awesome is it that you're not here to hear what I have to say? I mean, indirectly you are, right? Because I'll be the one that's talking for the next two hours. But, um, but ultimately, you're here. You laugh, but <laughs> ultimately, though, um, you are here to hear from the Lord, right, through his word. So I'm, I'm glad for that, right? I'm not here just to give you my opinion on something. We're here to hear from the Lord. So um, we're going to be in Isaiah 53 today, as we said, um, the last couple verses, the last three verses. But before we get into those three, I kind of want to summarize where we're at, sort of get ourselves in the context of where we've been. So Isaiah 53 is the last of four servant songs in Isaiah. So Isaiah's got what we call servant songs. There's four of them. And in juxtaposition to Israel, God's servant, which we've been learning about for, what, two years now in Isaiah with some breaks, Israel is a very disobedient and unfaithful servant, frequently breaking God's commands, which is why they find themselves in the position they're in Isaiah, which is getting ready for exile, okay? So there's the unfaithful servant, Israel. But then there are four servant songs that describe the faithful servant, who's going to be different from Israel, he, unlike Israel, is going to be obedient and faithful, and he is going to do the will of God, okay? So this servant's song is the fourth of four, and we've been learning about this servant, this individual. And so <clears throat> to summarize it, as, as Eric sort of summarized it in the beginning, so this is from Eric's first sermon in the series, quote, in the servant song, Yahweh introduces his servant, describes his life and his work, and by Yahweh's will, the innocent and righteous servant will be put to death as a guilt offering for the people that will be accepted by Yahweh and produce righteousness and peace for the people. Okay, that summarizes the point of this servant song. So Eric and Jimmy have already worked for the last three or four weeks, starting at the end of 52, like 13 or so, and now I'll finish at the end of 53 today. And we've kind of covered who the servant is, his life, his experiences, right? He was crushed. He was, you know, bruised for our iniquities, right? And so we've learned about some of what he's done, some of what happened to him, and then we're going to kind of finish up today with the final implications of that, all right? And what I want to do is I'm actually going to read the whole servant song this morning to start, okay? So we're going to start at 52, verse 13, and read through the end of 53. <clears throat> so 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. <clears throat> As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we're going to take our three verses one at a time. And then we're going to kind of tie it all together at the end, okay? So 53.10, digging in a little bit. I'll read it again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Okay, so 53.10 starts with the word yet, right? And the word yet is a reference back to what happens in the preceding verses or preceding idea, which is 53.9. And in 53.9... We see that the servant was killed unjustly, even though there was no deceit found in his mouth and he had done no violence. So it appears that the servant was innocent, which he was, and yet he was killed anyways, right? So it seems as if that's something that shouldn't have happened, right? Yet, because of his innocence, it was actually the will of the Lord to crush him, okay? So it seems as something that shouldn't have happened, and yet it did happen by God's own doing, all right? Other translations render this as, he, meaning God, has put him to grief or caused to suffer or crushed him severely, right? So the death of the servant for the iniquities of his people, this is going back to verses 5 and 8, was the will of God and it was his doing, okay? The death of the servant was the will of God and it was actually his doing, all right? And what do we know about the will of God from Isaiah to this point, right? Isaiah talks a lot about the will of God, and I'll give you a representative passage on that. This is nothing new to Isaiah, right? 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So it's really clear from Isaiah so far that Yahweh is the single, undisputed, unrivaled, sovereign ruler of the universe. What he says, he does, okay? So when it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that means it was going to happen, and God brought it to pass, all right? Peter picks up on this in Acts 2, 22 and 23, speaking to a group of Jewish men in Jerusalem, right? He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It must happen, right? Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I, Christ said, Be cold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish a second. And by that will, namely the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, so it's very clear that not only was the death of the servant not an accident. Okay, it was not a reaction by God. It was not a plan B. It was God's plan A, and it was God's own doing. All right, and it was at the hands of sinful men, which is not unlike what we've seen of his judgment on Israel to this point, right? He uses pagan nations, sinful men doing sinful things to accomplish his perfect purposes, all right? So we, we have to get this, all right? And again, this is a contested idea in our culture, right? Jesus was not merely an unfortunate religious teacher who ran afoul of the authorities and got himself killed, all right? He was the obedient servant who came to be crushed by God for our sins at the hands of sinful men, not one of whom did anything that was outside the perfect plan of God. Okay? I'll say it again. Jesus was not merely an unfortunate religious teacher who ran afoul of the authorities and got himself killed. He was the obedient servant who came in order to be crushed by God for our sins at the hands of sinful men, not one of whom did anything that was outside the perfect plan of God. Okay? And praise the Lord for that. So moving on to 53. 53, let's call it the middle part here, right? It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, namely the servant, shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, okay? When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Eric and Jimmy have both touched on this quite a bit because it's the theme of this passage, and that is to say, this is sacrificial language. His soul is making an offering for guilt, and this harkens directly back to Leviticus chapter 7, talking about the guilt offering, okay? And the guilt offering has a particular emphasis on atonement, and restitution, okay? This is part of the sacrificial system that God had given Israel. So in the servant song, the servant's life, or his soul, is in place of the animal, and he, namely the servant, is the offering for guilt, okay? This is very clear sacrificial language. And in 52.15, that was one of our earlier sermons on the series, Eric talked about how he, quote, sprinkles many nations, right? And the sprinkling is a reference to the sprinkling of the blood in the sacrificial system, okay? And it's for the guilt of someone, namely us, verses 5 and 6, or God's people, verse 8. So the servant is dying as a sacrifice for sin, but they're not his own sin, right? Because he had done no wrong, there was no deceit found in his mouth. So he's innocent, and yet he is dying for sins, but they're not his, they're somebody else's, all right? Now, carrying on in 53, his soul makes an offering for guilt, but, surprise here, he will see his offspring and he shall prolong his days, right? Those are a parallel statement. Shall see his offspring, shall prolong his days, okay? How can this be? How can the servant die decisively, be crushed as a sacrifice, and yet somehow see those that come after him and prolong his days? How's this happen, right? Well, we know the end of the story. This is a foreshadowing of the resurrection, right? We know that. Of course, Isaiah's readers, if you put yourself in their shoes, this is something they could only imagine, right? So they didn't necessarily know exactly what that meant. We know from the New Testament it's the resurrection, right? But what's very clear from Isaiah in this part is that there's something not permanent 
about the servant's death. Okay, it's a real death. He does die. Okay, contrary to some scholars, he is actually dead, but it's not permanent. Okay, again, we know that to be the resurrection. So recall again Jesus in Matthew sixteen twenty one, just read it a minute ago. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, really die, and on the third day, be raised. Okay, Jesus knew that this is what was going to happen for the servant. And then the angel tells the women in Mark 16, 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, okay? So it's very clear in Isaiah, the servant's death is a real death, and yet it's not a permanent one. And we know now, again, this is a foreshadowing here of the resurrection, which is pretty cool. Right? So before we get into the last little bit, 5310, we should just pause here for a moment and reflect. It's, it's a marvelous thing. It's really encouraging for us. It should be encouraging for us that what the Lord says he's going to do, he does, right? This is just an example of that. The Old Testament's full of it, okay? This is just a representative example. He said the servant's going to die and be resurrected. And what happens? Jesus dies, and surprises, surprises, he's resurrected, okay? So when Old Testament prophecies, I just want to camp on this for a second. When Old Testament prophecies come to fulfillment in Christ, and they do, and it's perfect, it's not happenstance, okay? It's not like everything got lucky and lined up just right, and lo and behold, he fulfilled this stuff just perfectly by some chance, okay? When Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies about him, the Messiah, perfectly, it's because it's the history writing sovereign will of God coming to pass exactly as he said it was going to happen, okay? It's not happenstance. It's according to his definite plan, all right? Which is really, should be really encouraging to us. God is not reactionary, right? He is sovereign, and what he says he's going to do, he does. And that means that for those of us in Christ, all of his promises about future glory, right? Us being glorified, spending forever with him, new heavens, new earth, reversal of the curse, all that, those are as surely going to happen as this one, which very surely happened, right? He said he'd do this. He did it. He said he's going to do a lot more. Is he going to do it? He's going to do it. You can trust him, okay? He has a very good track record of doing what he says he's going to do. Now, that's good news for us who are in Christ, okay? But for those who are not in Christ, and this ties into our little evangelism spiel, right? His promises of judgment are equally sure, okay? They're equally going to happen, right? His promises of salvation for his people are sure, but you can also guarantee that his promises of judgment on the unbelieving are equally going to come to pass, okay? And that's, that should be very sobering for us, and it should move us to evangelize the lost, right? Okay, last little bit of 5310. So, he shall prolong his days. We know that's the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, all right? Or, as could be rendered, by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished, okay? So, the servant is successful in what he does. He accomplishes the purpose of the Lord, and what is it that he's doing? He's being crushed by God, again, for the sins of the people, right? So the primary reason the servant came, and I'm going to say this probably a hundred times because it's the main thrust of the passage. The primary reason that the servant came was to bear iniquities, okay? He did not merely, speaking of Jesus, come to bring physical healing, though he did that. Speak truth to power, though he did that. Bring good moral teaching, set us an example, etc., etc. He did all of these things, but they were on the path to Jerusalem where his face was set, as Luke says, right? He had come for a specific purpose, and that was to be crushed by God, which was the Lord's pleasure to do that and to accomplish it through the servant. So the servant is accomplishing something in his death, right? And the primary thing that he's accomplishing is dying for our sins, the sins of the people. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I, Paul, 
delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. John the Baptist, in introducing Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul again in 1 Timothy 1, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Okay? So I want to pause on this for a second here because we've been talking about all this stuff about Jesus dying for our sin. And that's the point of the servant passage. He's bearing the iniquities of the people. When we talk about the gospel, okay, and again, I bring this up because this is a contested idea in modern Christianity, okay? The core, central, most foundational point of the gospel, the thing that Christ was doing primarily in his death and resurrection was dealing with sin, okay? That is why the servant was crushed. Servant was crushed to deal with the sin issue because sin fundamentally is what separates us from God. That is what breaks our fellowship with the creator, okay? It's what keeps us from living out our intended God-given purpose to glorify him, right? So when the servant comes, he is dealing with the sin issue. All of the other benefits of the gospel, and there are many, and some of them will be realized for some of us now, and all of them will be realized perfectly in eternity. Things like physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, all of those kinds of things. Those are coming. They are a result of what Christ is doing when he redeems all things, okay? But at the core of what he was doing, the thing that had to be dealt with primarily so that any of that other stuff could even make sense would be solve the sin problem because sin is why we even have the curse to begin with, okay? So at the heart of the gospel is Christ solving our sin issue. All the rest of that stuff is part of that, but that's what he was accomplishing primarily. Does that make sense? We're not denying those benefits, okay? But we have to be careful not to make the benefits the message at the core, right? Because you have a lot of people that come to Christ for those other things, but they're going to go to hell not knowing him because it didn't work for them because they wanted him to give them a better marriage or fix their cancer or whatever, and he doesn't, but that's because they missed the whole point of the sin issue. They just want him to make their life better. That's not the core of the gospel, okay? It's not the core of the gospel. Those things are coming. I promise you they are for those who are in Christ. It will be like that forever, but now, primarily, our sin issue is what the servant is dealing with, okay? All right, 5311, on to the next one. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. A lot of pronouns here. These are references to the servant. Out of the anguish of the servant's soul, the servant shall see and the servant shall be satisfied. Okay, so in the depths of his suffering, as the servant is suffering for his people, the servant sees, kind of like he sees his offspring, and he is satisfied. So the servant is suffering, but he sees something and he's satisfied with it. What is he satisfied with, right? Well, he's satisfied in the results of his labor. So what he's accomplishing in his suffering is satisfying to him, all right? Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, okay? Christ the servant was willing to do the will of God and be crushed for our iniquities. It was satisfying. It was pleasing to him to do this work, okay? We do not serve, and this is encouraging to us as well, we do not serve a grudging Savior, okay? He was not drug kicking and screaming to the cross on our behalf, reluctantly, right? It wasn't like he didn't want to do it. He was willing to give himself for us in obedience to the will of the Father, despite the anguish and the suffering, okay? And we're going to go through that a little bit more in detail here in a bit. So the next part, by his knowledge, the righteous one, so we, he's, on, he's suffering, 
He sees what he's doing. It's satisfying to him, okay? And by his knowledge, the righteous one, the suffering one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, okay? So by his knowledge, whose knowledge? Knowledge that he has or knowledge that we have of him? It's two different things, right? Well, the word knowledge could also be translated as sweat, which would read by his sweat or his work, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous. So the idea with this passage, which is all about the servant's work, the idea is that the servant is doing something, and those that know the servant of, of his work can be made righteous, okay? So the perfect guilt offering that the righteous one, the servant, is making yields righteousness for the many for whom he bears their iniquities. So the servant bears the iniquities of the many, verses 5, they're laid on him, verse 6, and as a result of that, many are accounted righteous. Okay, that's here in verse 11. So the penalty owed for the sins of the people is borne by the servant for them, and they can be accounted righteous. Okay, there is no other way this happens, by the way. This is the only way that that actually happens, where someone who's unrighteous becomes righteous, and someone's sins are born perfectly. It only happens if the servant does it for them. All right? And another point here to sort of pause on and make, again, contested in modern Christianity, is what is the servant actually doing when he makes people accounted righteous, okay? Is the servant actually making people righteous, or is he giving people the opportunity to become righteous by their own doing, right? Some would argue that the servant just merely purchases for people a blank slate upon which they can decide later what they're going to write. The servant buys them the chance to become righteous, and if they do certain things, then they will become righteous, but they got to do the things after the servant gives them the chance. That's not what Isaiah says. It's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that because of the servant's work, the many are going to be accounted righteous. His work accomplishes something that is then given to them, namely righteousness. So we believe that when Christ died, his death was decisive, and it was effective for making people righteous. You are not obligated to make yourself righteous just because he gave you the chance to do that. Does that make sense? Right? You will, you will run across that idea that you have to do a bunch of stuff. He's helping you along the way. That's not what we believe. The servant is doing the work on his people's behalf. Right? Those are fundamentally different. Okay? Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience, namely Adam, the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay? The one man being Christ. Right? That's Romans 5. Talking about old Adam, new Adam. Christ and Adam. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this, which is Paul talking about reconciliation, okay, and a new creation, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? Our righteousness is found in the righteousness of the servant. It is not your righteousness or my righteousness. It's the servant's righteousness applied to you, and he can do that because he took your sins for you on himself. Alright? Now, <clears throat> if you have if you've been here on Wednesday nights, then this is what we've been talking about for probably a month and a half now, right? This whole idea that there's we're represented by Adam, and as such, we're sinful. But if we are represented by Christ, the second Adam, we are actually counted righteous through him. Okay, so quick plug for Wednesday nights. Come and learn what we're talking about in Romans, because it dovetails really nicely with what we're learning about in Isaiah. Okay, and also it's been, uh, it's just been really good to hear from other guys. We're taking turns teaching through Romans on Wednesdays, right? So if you haven't been able to come on Wednesdays, I would encourage you to, to do that. It's going to tie nicely with this. Okay. <clears throat> 
So before we go on to 53.12, I want to just pause here for a second. Um, and so what I'm going to say for the next minute is, is a direct encouragement or a or, or challenge to um, those of us who might not totally believe this yet, right? Some of us, we may be a little bit on the fence if we're skeptical, we're fairly self-confident in this, or we're outright unbelieving on this whole idea of the servant making us righteous, okay? So I just want, I have it on good authority, <laughs> namely God himself, okay? That there is no amount of good deeds or charitable giving or patriotism or therapy or self-help psychology or whatever you want to put into that category, being better than other people, there is nothing that can make you righteous and absolve you of your due penalty before God for your sin. Okay? There is nothing and no one that can do that other than the servant. And I most assuredly can tell you, you cannot do it yourself. Okay? The only one, the only thing that absolves you of guilt and gives you real perfect righteousness is the servant. Okay? So I implore you, if you don't believe that, or if you think that that's not necessary for you, to, to reconsider. By, by God's word himself. Reconsider that because the righteous one, the servant, is the only one. The only name given under heaven by which we may be saved. It is the servant. And you need it. You need him to do this on your behalf because you cannot. If you could do it, we wouldn't even have this passage. He wouldn't have come and done what he did. Okay, But he did, which means you need it. Okay, right? 53.12. Chugging right along. So the servant does the work, right? He accomplishes righteousness for his people. What happens next? Therefore, I, God speaking, I, God, will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So because of what he does in making the many righteous and in bearing their iniquities, it says, therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, right? And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And if you've got an ESV, or really any translation, your footnotes probably say the strong could also be rendered numerous. I think that's probably a better translation because it's a parallel idea. I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the numerous, right? And that connects with the many of verse 11. But the point is here, this is victory language, all right? This is battle language. So the servant does something, okay? He accomplishes something for God, for Yahweh. He does his will. And as a result of that, he is given spoils. Right? Does it sound like a victory? Sounds like a battle. You win a battle, you are given spoils. So the servant is given spoils because he accomplishes something. He wins a victory. And then he divides those spoils with the many. Okay? Well, what, what are the spoils that he's giving away? Given that, the passage is primarily about atonement and reconciliation. The spoils that he gives are salvation and righteousness. To quote the New Testament, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay? So the servant accomplishes something is rewarded for it, and shares in the benefits of what he accomplished with the many, right, who, who's for whom he bore their sins, right? Which is fantastic, by the way. Christ wins a victory, and you benefit from it, which is awesome, okay? Again, you're not the one winning the victory. He wins it, and you benefit, right? And he gets all the credit for it. Okay, so why, why, does, he, why, is he, why does he earn this reward? Well, like we said, he suffered, 53.12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, okay? He was obedient to the will of God and gave himself as a sacrifice. As a result of that, he's rewarded by Yahweh. He divides the spoils with us, okay? And remember how I said earlier that the servant is a willing servant. He gave himself. He poured out his soul to death. He did this, right? On behalf of his people. So I'm going to read a handful of New Testament passages that sort of cement this idea in our mind that the servant was willing and did this on our behalf 
in obedience to God's will. Mark 10, 45, Jesus speaking. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul in Galatians 2. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5. 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Timothy 2.6 Who gave himself, Christ, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2 Who, Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In Galatians 1.4 Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So he willingly does what he does, okay? And he pours out his soul, to, his soul to death. And what is he? He's numbered. This is ironic, okay? He's numbered with the transgressors. And as we saw this in the previous part of Isaiah 53, the people that watch the servant suffer do not understand what's going on. They think he's suffering because he's being punished by God for his sins as a transgressor. But in reality, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. And quite literally, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He had one here and one here in his death, right? He died between two criminals. So the people who looked at him dying said, he's a transgressor. He's dying for his sins. But in reality, what he was doing was making intercession for the transgressors and dying for their sins, right? They couldn't see what was happening, but it was the exact opposite of what they thought, okay? They thought he was being punished for his own sins. In reality, he was being punished for theirs, okay? Now, <clears throat> this is cool. Jesus quotes this phrase, numbered with the transgressors, as he's on the way to Gethsemane. Okay, with his disciples, hours before his death. He says in Luke twenty two thirty seven, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Must be, right? According to the will of God. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus explicitly applies, cannot miss this, he explicitly applies that, this whole passage about the servant song, to himself. Okay? And when he says, he was numbered with the transgressors, you know, if someone just says that phrase to you, unless you know Isaiah really well, it doesn't really mean a lot. But he doesn't say, in Isaiah 53, it says about me. He just says, he was numbered with the transgressors, and they knew immediately what he was saying, okay? This is a not unknown passage to a good Hebrew and a good Jew like his disciples were, right? If I quote to you something like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, da-da-da-da-da, you immediately know what I'm talking about. It's a very familiar document to us. I only have to quote the first couple sentences. Or if I say, I have a dream, you immediately know that I'm about to give you Martin Luther's speech, okay? There are very well-known, you know, speeches and documents that we only have to quote a little bit of, and you immediately get the context. I would argue that that's what he does here. He just quotes a little bit of the servant song, but in quoting it, he applies the whole song, because that's who this is about, to himself, right? Not just this little bit. He's talking about the servant, and he's saying, I'm him. I am the long-awaited, promised, perfect, righteous, sin-bearing, righteousness-giving servant. That's me. And that's blasphemy unless it's true, right? And he applies it to himself, right? And know what he says about it. He says, this scripture will be fulfilled in me, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Okay? It's as good as done, right? It will happen. What's, what was written 700 years ago is about to be fulfilled in me, and we're talking a matter of hours at this point, right? That is staggering, okay? So <clears throat> we'll pause here for a moment.
and zoom back out and kind of look at this whole passage as a whole. We should be careful when we're reading our Old Testaments that we don't incorrectly apply things in the Old Testament to Christ. Okay, We can get a little carried away with that. You've probably seen this done. You can make anything you want in the Old Testament about Christ if you do some gymnastics, right? So we ought not to do that unless it's warranted, right? We ought to be careful about how we apply Old Testament passages to Christ. So the question is, thinking about the last four weeks, how do you know that Eric and Jim and I are correct that this whole passage applies to Jesus anyways, right? Maybe the progressive scholars and the liberals are right, and the rabbis, that this has nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe this is about a Jewish remnant, about Israel, at a specific place in time and history, and this has already been fulfilled in a certain group of Jewish remnants, and has nothing to do with a single messianic figure. Right? How do you know that that is not what, what this means? Have we wasted four weeks telling you the wrong thing? Well, I would argue from what we just read about what Jesus himself says that we are in good company and on good ground applying this to Christ because one, like I just said, he applies it to himself, okay? So we apply it to Jesus because Jesus applied it to Jesus, all right? Seems like we're on we're good logic there, okay? But not only that, as it's been referenced in the last three or four weeks, this song is applied to Jesus six additional times in the New Testament, and every time it's quoted in the New Testament, it's applied to the person and work of Christ, okay? So, as we wrap up the servant song, you can sort of leave feeling confident that we are correctly applying this to Christ because he applies it to himself and because the other New Testament authors clearly apply it to him as well, okay? Which is, it's good to know why we think this applies to him because if it doesn't, we're on some really shaky theological ground saying that he did all this for us if he really didn't, okay? The stakes are high. All right, <clears throat> the last little bit of 53.12 here. It says he was numbered with the transgressors, yet or because he bore the sin of many and makes, a trans makes intercession for the transgressors. Okay, I've already said this a few times, but as already said before, and it's confirmed here again, the death of the servant was to bear the sins of the many. Okay, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he was bearing their sins, not dying for his own, and as a result of that, he makes intercession for them, okay? And the intercession means, you know, he's intervening on behalf of another, or he's pleading the case of, or entreating, and as Hebrews 9 says, he is one who appears in the presence of God on our behalf, and he lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him, Hebrews 7. So the work of the servant is intercessory work. Because he bears their sins, he's able to intercede for them, okay? Whether it's his words or his actions, they are on behalf of his people. He's doing a, mediati, a mediatory work, okay? And that's the end of the servant song, right? It ends on that note right there. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The main point of the song is the last point of the song, namely, the servant is doing this to make intercession for and bear the sins of sinners, okay? So let's wrap it up. We zoomed out, we zoom in, we zoom back out. So, to summarize what I said in the beginning. During the servant song, Yahweh has introduced his servant, whom we now know to be Jesus Christ, and we have learned prophetically from Isaiah of the servant's life and work. By Yahweh's will, the innocent and righteous servant was put to death as a guilt offering for the people that was accepted by God and produced righteousness and peace for the people. Okay? We got that idea glued in our minds? Move on? Okay. All right. So now what? That's always the question, right? talk about a passage, we read it, that's cool, tell me what to do with that, which is fine, it's a good impulse to have, what do we do? Sometimes it's behavior modification, we change the thing we're doing or not doing, we say something different, we do something. Here's my application for the servant song, okay? I have one word application, and that word is marvel, okay? I think our application should be that we are 
awed and amazed, humbled, certainly, and we should worship, right? Learning about what the servant has done, because who else but the servant can do this? He's marred, scorned, oppressed, he's unassuming, he's sorrowful. Who else but that servant, which is surprising, right? He's not what you expect, but who else but him can do that, the will of the Lord, perfectly, take away the sins of people, and give them righteousness? And the answer is, no one, right? Nobody else can do what the servant is accomplishing in Isaiah 53. Moses can't do this. Joshua can't do this. David, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. There's not another figure, even the most righteous ones, that could possibly accomplish what the servant accomplishes. He alone can do what is said of him here, right? In fact, his work is so marvelous that its servant song starts out in 53 by saying that he will be highly exalted and kings of the earth will shut their mouths because of him, right? The most powerful people in the world, most powerful people in history, right? Genghis Khan, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Ronald Reagan, right? Nobody, not even Donald Trump, will have a word. Imagine that. No one, none of them will have anything to say except silence. Their mouths will be shut for awe and surprise at the servant's work, right? The most powerful people in history will have nothing to say because of what the servant has done. It's that much more magnificent and that much more glorious than anything any human being has ever accomplished. Even the most accomplished people, they got nothing to say, right? They cannot hold a candle to what the servant does, all right? So, Revelation 5. This is my closing for today. In Isaiah, we look forward 700 years of what the servant is going to do, and it's marvelous, okay? And in, in Revelation 5, John gives us a look into heaven at the exaltation of Christ. And he talks about who's worthy to open the scroll. There's a scroll in discussion. And the point is not so much what's in the scroll. It's the culmination of human history. Whoever opens the scroll is bringing history to completion, right? The point of Revelation 5 is worthiness. Who is worthy to accomplish what God is doing to end history? Who is worthy to open this scroll? Okay. And I'm going to read all of Revelation 5, and we're going to close. This is John. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one in heaven or earth could open the scroll. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe. He sprinkled every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 